listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, the fountain of youth, living forever. It's long been the stuff of stories, of mythology. But science continues to unlock the secrets of aging these days, figuring out that while we all celebrate birthdays every year, we actually age differently. And unlocking that could mean finding out ways to slow down or even reverse the aging process. How would that work? We find out. Did you know that a car is stolen in Canada every five minutes? 2023 was another bad year for auto thefts. A new report shows that between 2021 and 2023, it's up 48.2% in Ontario, 57.9% in Quebec, 34% in Atlantic Canada, and it's also up in Western Canada, just 5.5%. But still, a lot of these vehicles are being shipped out of the country and sold overseas. Now, the federal government is hosting a summit on Thursday to tackle the ever-growing problem, bringing together municipal, provincial, and federal politicians along with border and law enforcement agencies. So what are some of the solutions? They are one of Canada's biggest rock bands of the past decade with multiple Junos and a worldwide hit called Spirits to their name. And now after a five-year hiatus and a bit of a personnel change, the Strumbellas of Lindsay, Ontario are back with their first album in five years called Part-Time Believer. It's out on Friday the 9th and they're about to set off on a three-month North American tour beginning on Friday in Vancouver. Jimmy Chavo and John Hembry tell me all about it. But first, to a nautical mystery in Newfoundland. The massive overturned hull of a seemingly old ship, probably built in the 19th century, has appeared without warning along the southwestern tip of that province. It's attracted a bunch of people with a bunch of questions. Where did the ship come from? Where was it going? How did it sink? And who was on board? We'll get some of those answers. This is a nautical mystery that's revealed itself off the shores of southwestern Newfoundland. The massive overturned hull of a large wooden ship appeared out of the blue on January the 20th beneath the water just off the beach near Cape Ray, first discovered by a man out hunting seabirds. He spotted a shadow just beneath the water, went home to tell his family about it. He'd been at the same spot just a few days before and there was no sign of it. Now, it may have been dislodged from the seabed during Hurricane Fiona or the remnants of it back in 2022. And with each subsequent storm, it perhaps was loosened further. There were some big swells in and around that area in the week leading up to it appearing uh, in Cape Ray. Since then, of course, it has attracted a steady stream of visitors to the small seaside community about 900 kilometers west of St. John's. Bert Osmond lives there. I've been down here spending four, five, six hours almost every day watching it, make sure that nobody's touching it. And they're also, of course, trying to make sure that it doesn't float away and trying to keep people away from it as well. All of them, though, that have gone to see it have the same questions. Where did it come from? Where was it going? Where did it sink? Where has it been for the last maybe century, century and a half? Who was on board? It is believed it was built in the 1800s, but nothing more really is known about it for now. Uh, now, that much said, it might not add much to the history of Newfoundland itself, except a reminder of how many ships have sunk off its shores over the centuries. But many are eager to figure out what story it tells, what mysteries it holds. And that includes Neil Burgess. He's president of the Shipwreck Preservation Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. He made the 900-kilometer drive and back, so 1,800-kilometer round trip from St. John's to Cape Ray over the weekend to see the wreck for himself and to start that investigation into the mysteries that it holds. And Neil Burgess joins me now. Neil, thanks so much for your time tonight. Glad to be here. 
Well, I mean, everyone understands, I think, uh, just how much history uh, there is of shipwrecks in Newfoundland over the many, 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 many years. This one has a lot of people talking, though. What's What's been so fascinating or what's what's really piqued people's curiosity about this particular ship? Well, I, I, I think it's partly because this shipwreck was just thrown on the beach unexpectedly and it appeared out of nowhere and the the location is kind of the southwest corner of Newfoundland and there are a lot of shipwrecks there. So th- this was the first time in a long time that people have actually been able to see one physically. And, and I guess internationally, it's been just the mystery associated with this. We don't know which ship this is. We don't know how many people died when it was wrecked or if anybody survived. So we've got a fair bit of detective work ahead to try to put a name to the shipwreck. You've been down there now. Tell me a bit about uh, that experience, but actually going to see it in person. What was that like and what did you learn? I was amazed at how big this shipwreck is. Uh, the The part of the hull that we were looking at is at least 100 feet long. So the ship was quite a bit bigger than that, which makes it a fairly large ship uh, sailing ship for this region. It's the middle of winter here, and most of the ship was underwater at low tide, and the water is just about freezing temperatures so it's very cold so we were doing our best to measure it and get samples from it so that we could date the shipwreck Um, and we were looking at a bunch of timbers that have been uh, torn off the hull and thrown up on the beach and we were getting wood cores from from them uh, with a drill so that we could uh, possibly date the ship from looking at when the trees were grown Tell me a bit about how it might have wound up there, because it feel it seems like an awfully large object to be sort of to sort of wash up on shore. Well, th- that corner um, of the province gets hammered by really large seas, and two years ago, in the fall of twenty two, uh, it got hit by a by the tail end of a hurricane, Fiona, right, and that destroyed. 50-something houses in the nearby town. In part of Basque, and, yeah, yeah. And just pour up the coast. So my guess is is that this shipwreck has been buried in the sand of this bay for probably more than a century, and Hurricane Fiona uncovered it by moving the sand around so much. And then it's been bumping around on the bottom, and then two weeks ago, a storm threw it up on the beach. Remarkable because it is, as you mentioned, I've just seen some photos of it. It is, it is huge. What's your, what's your best guess uh, as to how old it is and maybe where it came from? Well, I would say it's most likely from the 1800s. I can't get it any uh, more specific than that at this point. Um, And we noticed that some of the really huge timbers in the ship were made of oak. And that rules out that it was built here in Newfoundland or in Atlantic Canada. So it's probably been built in Europe or perhaps the eastern United States. Um, But based on where most of the ships were coming from that traveled by Cape Ray, I would say it's probably from Britain. Uh, And it may be an immigrant ship that was bringing uh, new immigrants from Ireland or, or Britain to to uh, Canada or Newfoundland. 
Right. So, so listeners who aren't in your neck of the woods understand that this this was a very busy shipping lane at uh, at one point in time. It's certainly, I mean, I don't know if it's still as busy as then, but it was a very busy uh, shipping route back when. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was uh, dozens of ships going by every month from Liverpool into Quebec City to offload immigrants, uh, taking wood on the way back uh, and other raw materials from Canada. So there was a, a lot of uh, shipping trade between Britain and France, too, and and uh, Canada at that time, and Newfoundland, which at that, in the 1800s, was a separate country. Indeed. Yeah, and I guess you'd have to, at this point in time, your best guess is is, is something built in the 18th century. What, um, I guess you'd have to go back now and look to see if there are reports of ships that had gone down. But there, there are, again, for, for people who don't live, I mean, I live in Victoria. We don't have a huge history of, of shipwrecks here. Some, obviously. But there, there, there must have been many over the years, must be many stories of ships that went down uh, off that coast over the many, many moons. Yeah, I mean, the mythology with Newfoundland is that there's 10,000 shipwrecks around the province. And when you look at how those shipwrecks are distributed, um, they tend to be at the corners where the ships were turning around the landmass to, in this case, go into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and up the St. Lawrence River. So Cape Ray would have been a waypoint uh, for all that shipping traffic coming from Europe going to Quebec. Neil Burgess is president of the Shipwreck Preservation Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. We're talking about a shipwreck that has washed up on shore uh, in the southwestern tip of Newfoundland recently. It's a big ship, a 100-foot hull, so a, a very big ship made of oak, so it suggests it's probably European, probably might have sailed from Liverpool and was heading perhaps towards Quebec City, as many did back in the day. So, Neil, what from your if you put your detective hat on, what happens now? What do you need to do to try to figure out more about where this, what the ship was and where exactly it was coming from? And who was on it, obviously, is really important. So when we were down uh, last weekend doing the survey, we collected uh, several wood samples from different timbers on the ship. Some of them were oak. Some of them looked like they might have been other uh, kinds of wood. We've uh, collected cores from those timbers that will allow us to um, send them off to experts who will look at the tree ring patterns. And from those tree ring patterns, they can figure out when this tree was grown and when it was cut down and then infer from that when the ship was built. Uh, and it'll put a much finer date to this ship with more certainty. We also collected a few bark samples uh, that could be used for radiocarbon uh, dating if we need to do that. And we collected a bunch of the fasteners from the ship. There were uh, wooden dowels that fastened the planks to the hull uh, that are called tree nails or trunnels. And there was a bunch of copper rods that were the same size, about a foot long and about an inch in diameter, uh, big pieces of copper that were used to secure the planks. And then there was some brass spikes that were really interesting looking. They were about a foot long, half half an inch in diameter, and they had barbs on the end that that would, when, once they were hammered into the wood timbers, they wouldn't back out uh, because of these barbs. They were almost fish barbs. And they, they, they struck me as being really interesting, and they may be diagnostic, to help us figure out where the ship was built and in what time period. Right. And I guess once you've established that, that really narrows down uh, the number of different 
because I, one would suspect there would be reports of this if it had gone down, especially such a big ship and if it was carrying a lot of people that somewhere somewhere, somewhere in the archives, there must be news of a ship lost uh, that would match that description. Yes, we have databases that um, are drawn mainly from old newspapers and from things like Lloyd's Register uh, historical accounts. Uh, and there are very good records from the 1800s on ships that were lost. And we can look at the lengths of those ships from the records and the dates they were built and try to match that up and with some of these dates that we get back from the tree ring analysis. And we should be able to, f I, I think we should be, be able to narrow down the list of names of this ship, maybe to a short list of three or five. And if we're really lucky, we'll be able to put a name to it with certainty. That's if we're really lucky. I guess in your work too, what um, I mean, the novelty of seeing the vessel itself is always interesting and what it was made of and where it could have been built and sailed. But I guess ultimately too, we, we think about those who, who lost their lives as so, as so many have off that coast over, over the centuries. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's two aspects of this. One is the physical pieces of the ship that we found and can look at. And I mean, the construction details are amazing. The skill that went into these ships and the number of trees that were used to build yeah. them, it, it's staggering. But then there's the human story. If we're able to put a name to this shipwreck, we can figure out where it was built, who was on it in this last voyage, what they were carrying. Was it full of immigrants? How many people died in the sinking were there any survivors and what happened to them? It becomes a real human story if we're able to put a name to it. Yeah. And and interesting that it's it's sort of sat there for 150 years because it struck me, and I obviously don't know enough about this, it struck me that it was in pretty good shape for a ship that sat uh, sat there for, for more than a century and a half probably. Yeah, that that was a really important clue when we looked at it. The wood and the metal fasteners are in very good shape. And that indicates to me that it was buried uh, because if it had been exposed on the seafloor, worms would have attacked the wood and uh, all the iron nails that we found in it would have rusted away decades ago. So this was definitely buried under the mud or the sand where there was no oxygen. And that's why it's been really well preserved. Well, Neil, I wish you the best of luck in your detective work on this one. I think everyone's waiting to figure out what this was and where it could have come from and who could have been on board on that, uh, you know, tragic. It would have been a tragic crossing, obviously. Neil, thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, gl glad to share share what we found out. Yeah, that's some new music from the Strumbellas. They've been uh, they've taken a five-year hiatus. It's called Hold Me. It's on their new album, which is out on Friday. Before I get there, though, we have the Strumbellas coming up. Uh, some notes that I've gotten from you. Just to clarify that uh, about stolen cars, Dave tells me that his uncle uh, had his truck stolen right off of his driveway a few years ago. We live east of Sherwood Park. It got stolen around 8, 11 p.m. at night. His son saw the truck leaving but didn't think twice why his dad would leave so late at night. Turns out he witnessed the truck getting stolen. Yeah, we're talking about uh, stolen cars. If yours has been stolen... 
recently stolen vehicles. Let me know, 1-877-399-9898. Did you find out what happened to it? One of those, uh, the recovery rate's pretty low these days. You know, a lot of these vehicles end up in uh, shipping containers and in other parts of the world being sold off. So there's a big summit coming up tomorrow about this. So we'll be talking about that tonight. And uh, Adrian mentioned that um, BC doesn't have a lot of shipwrecks. I, I, I misspoke and I caught it sort of as I was saying it, unfortunately. The west coast of Vancouver Island is littered with them from the 1800s to now. It's called the Graveyard of the Pacific. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we've even done stories on shipwrecks off uh, the west coast of Vancouver Island and the west coast of Washington State. Treacherous waters out there, I stand corrected. I was kind of referring to Victoria proper where I live, but there's been shipwrecks here too, so I should have just left it alone. But thanks for the thanks for the correction, absolutely. Well, they've been one of the most Canadian successful Canadian bands of the past decades. Canadian rock bands formed in 2008 in Lindsay, west of Peterborough. The Strumbellas are multiple Juno Award winners, and they hit it big with 2016 song Spirits, five-time platinum certified from the platinum album Hope. The track would crack the top 10 in Europe, would top the alternative rock charts in the U.S. It was on performed on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. They performed at the NHL Heritage Classic in Winnipeg. I mean, this was a monster hit. It was so big that it actually came back in a TikTok version, like a social media version in 2020, and ended up with millions more views. So it's actually had this long life. Um, they've had other hits, of course. There was the gold-certified Salvation from 2019's Rattlesnake. They performed that live on Late Night with Seth Meyers. So this, they've had a real run, but then... Uh, they kind of slowed down and, and, and took some time off. There's been some changes since then as well. Longtime vocalist and guitarist and one of the band's founders, Simon Wade, decided to take a step back and to take up a behind-the-scenes role. And in came Jimmy Chavot to take on his role with the band. And after five years, the result is a new record with 12 new tracks. It's called Part-Time Believer. That is out on Friday. And as that is released, the band is kicking off a very big North American tour, a very busy North American tour, a three-month jury that kicks off on Friday night at the Commodore in Vancouver with stops right across Canada quickly uh, over the next uh, two weeks or so. So it's my great pleasure to welcome uh, both John Hembry and Jimmy Chavot to the show tonight. The Strumbellas, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Congratulations. I mean, it's uh, five years is, is a long gap between albums. This must be both um, really exciting and just a tiny bit terrifying. <laughs> that is a good way to describe it. Um, you know, I think absent for a, you know, a bunch of things roiling the globe for a couple of years, perhaps it wouldn't have been quite so long between between albums. But like, yeah, um, as we're gearing up for the tour, like I think it did suddenly occur to us that it was like, when was the last time we toured Canada? Like a proper headline tour? Like we, obviously we're, we've been still playing shows, but like, I think it was like four or five years ago. And like, you are a bit like, do I still have it? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean listen, I mean, I, I, you know, the show airs across the country, so I'll, I'll let people know where you're going to be right across Canada uh, coming up over the next uh, several months, actually a couple of months at least. But you're starting off in Vancouver. That's a Commodore. Commodore is a great spot to kick off a tour, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's great. Um, I think we I think that was the last time we were in Vancouver Headline Tour. Played the Commodore, great room, great place to kick off, great place to like release the album. And then it's off to Victoria, and then like just start making our way east after that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Is there? I mean, how do you prep for a tour like that after after some time? I mean, you have some obviously. We'll, we'll talk about this, but there's been some uh, lineup change. And have you gotten ready for this one? We honestly, we went into uh, we started rehearsals a couple weeks back, and the the idea was kind of just to get the muscle back kind of thing with everything with like just movement playing uh, your ears, getting back to it and just like finding the notes and learning a lot of the new songs as well too, as we went through with it. 
And then um, just repetitions over and over again to have it, whereas that muscle memory locks in so that when we're on stage, we just have fun with it now. We just mess with each other and run around the stage. And then we had some production jams with our team and uh, the backdrop and everything is looking so, so good. And uh, they've made us look a lot cooler than we actually are as well, too. So it's going to be so <laughs> <laughs> I can sympathize. They make me sound brighter than I am every single night. <laughs> Thank God. Um, I I mean, I saw you years ago. And and one of the things, one of the things I found recently is if you go to sort of, I I think I saw ELO, not not that would be probably just before the pandemic and those shows, because of the way the lighting is done, they're so structured that it's the same show every night. It's literally the same show every night. Yours isn't right. I mean, you kind of, does it, does it vary as you go across? Yeah. Like I think this one will be fairly like, I wouldn't describe it as structured, but like similar songs. And then right. we, we've always got a floating component. We're like, oh, like cool. and I, I don't want to reveal too much, but like <laughs> it will tie into a, a major theme of the show. But like there is a sort of floating bit that will like all tie all the components of the album title with, uh, with this, with crowd interaction into a nice moment that then uh, takes the set in a different direction. Yeah. What's it like to, I mean, you haven't played in the States in a while, but what's the difference like to be down there? I guess it's, um, no, I mean, in Canada, you're kind of a Canadian band. So people know who you are and it doesn't really matter what genre you play. People kind of are all familiar with the tunes. Is it the same in the States? I think so. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah. like, um, you know, I actually wonder to be honest with you as a Canadian playing American eyes, I wonder if they don't even know that we're Canadian sometimes. <laughs> like I think Probably sometimes not. music fans are music fans and like they hear a song on the radio and they're like, that band's cool. And they swing yeah, to know yeah. like it's possible. Uh, Cause it's like not something we uh, maybe we should wear it on our sleeves more often, like you know. But uh, come out and say a lot or something, you know what I mean? We, we go in there. But, uh, I've never quite wondered that, but that's a good question, Jimmy. You're gonna have to learn that stuff. I have to say, uh, have you say the boot all the time as you're walking Utenaboot around Chicago and, uh, or something? Yeah, just come out with a hockey stick. <laughs> a field hockey stick. I'm kidding, um, yeah. Jimmy. What's it been like to to to, to move in and into that into that prominent position? I was watching uh, the video for for. Um, for hold on, obviously, hold me rather, uh, which is great. But it's interesting. It's just nice to see you in that role, and it was it was different, obviously. Yeah, it, it's it's been the most welcoming process I, I could have imagined from from the band who feels like a family now, and uh, from the fans as well too. Everybody's been just amazing. It's just been lovely. Like uh, you could not write it in a better way. It was it was just brilliant. I'm just um, I'm very very grateful to be where I'm at. Yeah. John, how has that changed to just, I mean, has it changed anything at all? I mean, the, the, the songs sound quite not similar, but you know what I mean? It doesn't sound like a complete departure from what you used to do. There's a lot of the themes are similar. It, it's, it must be interesting to just to work with a different, a different person in the band. Cause you guys were pretty tight for a long time. Yeah. No, honestly, like, obviously like it does make a, a big difference for sure. And like, there is certainly like a kind of a feeling out process for sure. But like you sort of said, it very much feels like a Strumbell's record, regardless, like it's, so, songs about dying but sung in a way to make you like want to sing along um it's kind of i think it's our bread and butter and um yeah like you know we took our long time um making this choice and like a big part of it was like who jimmy is as a person as well like not yeah. only he's a terrific singer but he's a great guy too um so we really fit in the group right away uh, that sort of thing is more important than anything else like you mean like being a cool person and like wanting to hang out with us and spending all the time like there's so much time together uh you just kind of grow and mold and the band becomes a new thing and um you know it's built off the old thing and it's great yeah i I, there's you know even just watching i mean videos i guess there aren't a lot of them out there i mean people don't they're not what they were when i was growing up but even watching the video for hold me it looks like everyone's having a good time and that was that kind of 
gave off the I think that was maybe the first people had seen of the new of the new lineup. And it was it was nice to see as well. Look like everyone was enjoying themselves. Yeah, I mean I, I had to ride that that ride like a grueling Ford five times. I think Jimmy may have had it more than me. I tell you, Ben, my thighs the next day, because we had a gig the next day as well, too. And I have that guitar, which is one of my favorite prized possessions. And so I was keeping my feet pushed back. I'm, I'm gesturing now on radio, but um, I was keeping my feet pressed to the to the door of that thing. And I think I think it was like 12 takes or something like that. Oh, that I did that. My nice. thighs were burning. And the next day I was like, why am I so tired? Why are my legs <laughs> And it like dawned on me, and I was like, oh, because you're just like flexing for three minutes straight each time that you go around. Yeah, it was it was interesting, but it was it was a great day. It was fun. It like, was. So. I should mention uh, to listeners, uh, it's on it's on uh, an amusement park ride with those what I used to think of as, as the spinning chairs or the spinning teacups, right? So it looks like it looks great, but I can imagine actually holding on for dear life would be no fun at all. <laughs> yeah, I think it's called the scrambler, and I'm I'm dead serious. <laughs> I did like four takes, and I was like, oh my god, how many more of these? I can't do anymore, guys. I'm quitting, quitting the Band. and then Jimmy's like it. doing take take 11 and 12 you know <laughs> hey well that's when you're when you're the lead singer you know when, you, when you're the front man that's what you gotta do right you get to do 12 everyone else gets to do four yeah uh-huh. like now double time I'm like no <laughs> <laughs> jimmy chavo and uh, john hembry of the strombolas are with us at this half hour their new record comes out it's called part-time believer and it's out on uh, the ninth i'm gonna i'm you know i always get these days wrong when i say but i think the ninth is friday i think it is um it is indeed right on uh, glass note records tell me a bit about making making the album because i i've been reading about it of course and i gather there was a lot of sort of uh, uh, stuff as we say in my business a lot of stuff left on the cutting room floor for time for now there was, yeah, like, um, again, you know, like just the way the pandemic and the world works out, like we just had a lot of time to kind of sit in a small, tiny room with each other and just be like, hey, like, let's make tunes. What else is there to do? So I think we ended up like having about 50 songs probably that we kind of whittled down, like some songs that go back to like a demo Simon made in 2017 to like new fresh songs we kind of came up with in the room. And it was just a lot of like, going through the songs and like things would kind of rise to the top and then like they might go down again or a new song might jump to the top. And then uh, like at a certain point, you got to just uh, pick the songs you're going to go with. Some people must be married to certain songs. Is it, is it easy to reach a consensus on that kind of stuff? Yeah, it depends, right? Like you, you, you always <laughs> love laughing. the ones that, yeah, that you love. And that you're, yeah. Yeah. There, there's a lot of, uh, I'm dying on the hill of this song because I wrote it last week and it's my favorite. And um, yeah, it, it, it was great though. It was, it was a really good, honestly, everything, everything with this whole process has just been such a bonding experience as well too, because it's just been like voting and trusting each other and going through and having it where it's like, even there's a song on their wreckage where it was one of these that, uh, uh, John and I just walked in the one day and he goes, oh, I have this voice memo. And he, he plays me this chorus. And I'm like, where have you been hiding that this whole time? And we we literally wrote it that day and it just came out and the band loved it. And it made it to the record like right away. And it was one of those that was always in, in the voting with it. And it was, I think we tracked it in the first six with it. So it was cool. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's that, as a long songwriter, I always find that find that stuff remarkable you can just sort of emerges from the imagination right into uh down into paper tell me a bit about just the process of i mean 
you, you've talked about this a lot in the past, just about the song, the kind of the message you deliver. You talked about earlier, sort of singing about death that you want to hum to. There's some really upbeat songs on this. I mean, Holster is kind of an upbeat track in, in and of itself. But uh, what, are you, what are you hoping that, that listeners get out of this one? What were you trying to say through the, the songs that you wrote and the songs that the 10 that made it onto the record? Yeah, it's a Stromo's record, right? So, like, there's songs about falling in love, and then there's songs about, like, hating yourself. Like, Holster, I think, is a song about kind of always feeling like you're somewhere between a total failure and an absolute hero, getting caught in that moment all the time. And, I mean, I think ultimately, this might sound a bit cliche, but, like, they're kind of human emotions and human stories and just sort of, like, like universal things that people feel, and, and those are often the themes we kind of write about. And we want people to, like, listen to them and have a reaction and sort of like interpret them their own way, you know what I mean? When, when they listen to it. Um, so, you know, it's sort of meant, meant to be interpreted that way. I, I don't know if you saw the Grammys the other night and, and uh, Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman were up and people were sort of, and Joni Mitchell as well, people were sort of just gushing about, about the, about the authenticity of, of, of Chapman specifically in a fast car in particular, although it goes back a long time. It must be both difficult and really rewarding to write songs that connect with people that way, where people will literally talk to you about how your music impacted them at a difficult time, for instance, in their lives. I'm still struck, like and it's still a bit awe-inspiring when someone comes to you after show and says, like, I experienced this significant life event, like someone I love died, or like I had this trauma and like I used your music to get through. Like it's always just an incredibly humbling experience. And like I don't think it ever stops being that way and to just to sort of have someone have that reaction to your music is it's a feeling you just it can't describe and i hope never goes away and it's just it's just a it's an absolute blessing to have that experience yeah jimmy same obviously but but from you know from a different path but same same experience no doubt honestly i i'm i'm grateful to be able to like experience it and to, to have those songs that you play and some of these songs that we play live we don't, we don't have to, I don't even have to sing the words. Like I can just play terrible acoustic and just let the crowd sing it back to us. Cause it's one of those things that's just like such a gorgeous moment happening. Yeah. Just the stories that you hear, like John was saying and stuff like that. And then for me, like I, I growing up, it was one of those things that like with uh, a band called Frightened Rabbit from the UK, mm-hmm. it, it was so helpful in my growth and development as a human being, because it, it, it was amazing to hear somebody going through the same sort of pains and struggles that I was. And it makes you feel not alone while you're going through those sort of pains and struggles. And I, I see a lot of comparisons with, with this, with this uh, band and, and the fans and stuff just from the messages and the stories that people have. And it's, it's uh it's very heartwarming to have, to have a community like that, where it's just everybody's with each other and there for each other. And the music kind of brings us all that much closer, which is lovely. Yeah, which which made the fact that uh, spirits ended up on TikTok with the TikTok remix and everything even even more kind of uh, lovely in a way because it was one of those things that it was that's kind of the opposite of that. It's sort of the it's kind of just about enjoying your music for the music, and that was that was also uh, must have been pretty rewarding as well to sort of see something that you wrote go viral in that way where people are just kind of vibing to it instead of sort of uh, sitting with it, for instance. Yeah, no, like, th- that's great, too. Like, you know, I mean, I think anyway, if you're connecting with music, like, not just ours, but like anyone's music, like, um, if that's the way you're discovering it, or like that, that's inspiring you to like, feel something or do something like just all, all the power to, you know, like, and, and for us, it was just a bit wild, like, it's sort of, again, that g- gave spirits this like second life it, it, into a whole new other group of fans who hadn't heard it before. So um, it's really cool. It's really neat. Yeah. 
it'd be amazing to think that you know there's there's like a you know a bunch of teens in India listening to your track or watching TikTok or the, because it's so global now, right? I mean, we used to be so limited. This business was quite limited, depending on where you played geographically, who knew you, how much your record company could get the word out. But now, literally, a, a whole planet can can hear your tune in a matter of a, a couple of weeks, right? It's it's phenomenal. Just like the the statistics that we get back as well too, like instantaneously, it's like oh, you wish Shazam four hundred and seventy eight times in India last week, and it was just like, huh? <laughs> it's like this crazy, yeah, these crazy stats have come back that we're all just like, oh my gosh, should we go tour India? We should go tour India. <laughs> we should go tour. You never know. You never know which job. Uh, John and Jimmy, congratulations. The new record's part-time believer. It comes out February 9th. The tour begins in Vancouver on February 9th. I'll run down some of those dates with you as well afterwards because there are many over the next uh, three months it is. Three months. Well, good luck. Good luck on this. Uh, you have many, you're playing many, many nights in rapid succession in many, many cities across North America. So I wish you all this, all the very best. Thank you. Let's talk about auto theft right now. Um, Bryce in Southern Ontario says, I don't have to worry about it. I never have to worry about someone breaking into my house for the keys. I drive a 25 year old beater. Yes. Anyone out there who doesn't drive a 2017 or later SUV or truck, you might be able to rest slightly easier. Uh, uh, during this story. But it doesn't take away from the fact that in this country these days, a vehicle is now stolen every five minutes. Every five minutes. And the problem has gotten worse over the past few years. A new report from Equité Association finds that between 2021 and 2023, auto theft trends increased sharply. In Ontario, up 48.2%. The GTA has been a huge epicenter of this. In Quebec, up 57.9%. Again, Montreal and the surrounding areas where most of this is happening. Atlantic Canada, up 34%. Western Canada, just 5.5%, but it's still heading upwards. BC apparently has been a bit of an outlier in all this. Canadian insurance paid out more than $1 billion in claims for the first time in 2022, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada. And of course, because of, of just the increases, it's an issue that's getting a lot of it, political attention suddenly. One reason, of course, is that the crisis is at its most acute in uh, riding-rich areas, such as the Greater Toronto Area and Greater Montreal. So you, won't, you can forgive politicians for wanting to focus on that as well. It fits into a bit of the Conservatives' tough-on-crime agenda as well. Um, but there's also concern right across the country about these thefts. Apparently, I was reading one, one stat that about 90% of Canadians, or sorry, a recent study finds that more than 80% of Canadians say the rise in auto theft makes them concerned about the increase in crime in their community, because there have been some violent incidents as well uh, that you may have read about. You also may have seen uh, these stories about people sort of putting air tags in their cars and figuring out that they're on their way, you know, they're in a ship somewhere on their way to the Middle East or to Europe quite quickly. Uh, and that's because that's a lot of what's been happening here. Um, this a lot of this is organized crime. These cars are, are targeted SUVs and uh, pickups mostly, uh, and they're newer ones, and they're sort of made to order in some ways. These are the ones that sell well, and they put them on shipping containers, mostly out of Montreal apparently, and then they're sent overseas and sold there. Ironically, of course, if you have an older car, they don't want them. The other thing that does not get stolen often is EVs because they don't have the charging facilities in the places where these vehicles are going for the most part. Um, so to, to sum this all up, they're having a summit, to, you know, as governments are wont to do. They're having a summit tomorrow to tackle this. It'll bring together municipal, provincial and federal politicians along with border and law enforcement agencies. Here's Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc a little earlier this week. The summit will bring leaders together to have productive discussions, exchange information and plans, 
and work on joint efforts that we all can take together and can be deployed by governments at every level. Uh, the federal government did recently announce about $120 million to help uh, combat auto theft in Ontario, so that was seen as a, as a good thing. But here's some interesting, here's some more interesting numbers for you. Um, the majority of vehicle thefts in Ontario, 68%, Quebec 75%, were vehicles made in 2017 or newer, uh, mainly newer luxury vehicles for maximum profit in overseas sales. The recovery rates, if this gives you any idea, 44% in Ontario, 37% in Quebec, which suggests that a lot of these vehicles are being stolen to be exported overseas through ports or revinned uh, and being used by criminal organizations or sold domestically sometimes to unsuspecting customers. Um, the Conservatives are getting in on this as well. Uh, they're touting their own plan. Here's Pierre Poliev talking about it in Parliament recently. We're going to get rid of house arrest We're going to, uh, for career car thefts. We're going to bring jail and not bail for people who have long rap sheets. We're going to bring in a mandatory three years jail for three cars stolen. We're going to increase penalties if the stolen car was related to organized crime. Then we're going to reinforce our ports. There you have it. That's just some of it, by the way. I'm not really sure that getting tough on the crime side of this is going to make a whole lot of a difference. I mean, there are already rules in place for these things. And I don't know about a three strikes you're out thing. A lot of times, this is these are crimes of opportunity, but but or not crimes of opportunity, but these are well set up systems. And the people doing the actual stealing of the cars normally aren't the people making the money at this. You might want to go after uh, the bigger fish in this one. Needless to say, though, uh, the profit margins of this are very high. The risk of prosecution is low. Uh, joining me now is Sid Kigma. He's Director of Investigative Services at Equite Association, who did uh, that, that car trend auto theft survey for 2023. Uh, Sid, thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for including me, Ben. Yeah, I, mean, I guess we're heading towards this big summit on auto theft, uh, and this report of yours would uh, would lay claim to the fact that uh, we need to be tackling this problem. There's some pretty uh, stark findings in it. Yeah, um, we're we're really excited that the uh, the auto theft summit was announced, and that's happening tomorrow. And you know, we're really hopeful that uh, good things will come from it. And I, and I don't think you know, I want to say maybe this is a start, but it hasn't. It's not really the start. Um, but you know, we're hopeful that things continue. That uh, you know, there's working groups that come out of this that we continue because it's not just going to be a magic bullet that comes out of this summit that cures everything. It's going to take some time. Tell me a bit about the trends that you're seeing, because they seem to be building year after year in, in the wrong direction. And specifically, and this is specifically for uh, for people in Ontario, Quebec and Atlantic Canada. Yeah, we're really seeing the increase in the numbers there in those provinces. And, and uh, it's really the what I call the epicenter of the auto theft crisis in Canada. We are seeing the numbers, you know, rise in the other provinces, but not to the same degree. And um, yeah, a lot of those vehicles that are being stolen in those regions are, are being uh, shipped to across the seas to uh, African countries and to Middle Eastern countries. That's where we're seeing them pop up. So is your sense here that there is sort of a well-oiled machine here in place, no pun intended, that is targeting certain vehicles, I should say, certain vehicles in certain areas, and then they have a, a well-established pipeline to get them out of the country? Absolutely. You're bang on, Ben. It's like they have a shopping list of the vehicles that are wanted. It's, uh, you know, simple economics, supply and demand. And they're looking for those specific vehicles and they find them, they, uh, you know, they have their methods to steal them. And uh, like you said, the, it's just the relationships and the connections and the basically the infrastructure those bad actors or those criminal organizations have in place that they're able to uh, ship them out of the country quickly. Yeah, because I, I think sometimes people look at this and wonder why there's been such a huge spike of late. Uh, it's specifically in places such as the GTA. 
Yeah, I, I think um, I think these criminal groups have really come to realize that how lucrative it is. I mean, you know, what's the investment on on stealing a vehicle? What does that cost them to steal it, to ship it? And then what's the return on their investment? Right. It's again, it's uh, it's it's very uh, lucrative. And, uh, you know, we uh, we know that from the uh, Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada, that more and more organized groups are getting involved in this and it's helped funding their other activities, whether those are you know, terrorism, guns and drug crime, those kind of things as well. Yeah. What is, I mean, when you look at what they're targeting, I gather it's SUVs obviously are a big seller. Uh, they're targeting certain late model cars. I mean, there are, there's a shopping list that they have. And unfortunately, if you happen to find yourself on that shopping list, as you mentioned, those are the vehicles that they're targeting. Yeah. You know, certainly it's the SUVs and the trucks. I mean, those are the biggest ones in demand. And, you know, we put out a a uh, top 10 stolen list every year we did in November. And that's always, that list is always a year behind. It's from 2022 numbers. It just takes a while for us to gather all the data, but yeah, it's all SUVs and uh, pickup trucks that are in demand. It's interesting to note that uh, Western Canada did see an increase as well. So this is not just something that's isolated to sort of Quebec and Ontario specifically, uh, but not quite as high, right? And of course, a lot of the listeners of this show are in Western Canada. What's going on with that? What, what, that's It's an interesting, as you mentioned, BC is an interesting outlier in all this. Yeah, Alberta traditionally, like we have high numbers here. and That's, that's where I'm located. Um, if you look at the per capita numbers, like how many auto thefts are happening uh, per 100,000 people were actually the highest in the country. The vehicles that they're stealing in Alberta are uh, more utilized for crime platforms. So they're used for, you know, committing other crimes or, or you know, transportation, those kind of things. But there is a concerning trend that we're seeing. Typically in Alberta over the last, you know, number of years, the recovery rates of those vehicles has always been quite high. Like we're talking uh, 85%. So all the vehicles that are sold in Alberta, about 85% are, are found again. Um, but that number is decreasing. So just last year, we've seen it decrease to 77%. So that's fairly significant in numbers. And um, what that tells us is that because we're finding less of those stolen vehicles, they're going somewhere. So those Alberta vehicles are being shipped out of the country as well. Yeah, that recovery rate is an interesting one because, as you as you mentioned, with this huge spike in in vehicle thefts, you would expect there be a, there'd be a spike in recoveries as well. But in places such as the GTA or you know Quebec and Ontario, that's not what we're seeing. No, their recovery rates are the lowest in the country. You know, we, we're talking in the the forty to fifty percent range. So that really is indicative of what's happening to those stolen vehicles, and that's being shipped out of the country, or in some cases do stay here domestically are given a new identity with a new VIN, fictitious VIN, and sold to unsuspecting uh, consumers. You know, oftentimes, I think we all understand this uh, necessarily as, as auto insurance payers, but even if your car isn't stolen or hasn't been stolen, or you have a vehicle that isn't targeted in this case, uh, everyone ends up paying the price for this. Yeah, absolutely. The cost of auto theft to the insurers is built into all of our premiums, you know, and, and that, of course, varies depending on the premium you pay for the vehicle you drive, the area you live. I mean, there's all kinds of risk factors involved in when they calculate your premium, but definitely auto theft is involved in that or calculated into that. Yeah, I was reading that insurers paid out over a billion dollars in claims for the first time in 2022. GTA, half of that. I mean, that's those are astounding numbers. Yeah, the numbers uh, are kind of mind-blowing. when you, It's over, I think it was $1.2 billion in 2022. And, and like you said, the GTA was more than half of that. Right. Uh, I, I suppose solutions here, I mean, we're going to hear politicians talk a lot about solution, the solutions they have. And of course, the summit tomorrow, will look at some of those things too. But uh, when one looks at, at, at the real problems here, I mean, 
if they're being shipped out of the country, uh, obviously a group such as yours would be looking for some improvement uh, at the ports, right? But that, but that seems to have been uh, that seems to have been a moving target for a long time. Yeah, I think there's improvements that can that can happen in every area, and that's what's the important piece to this summit that is happening tomorrow. Is that all the stakeholders are going to be at the table talking about what those solutions are because it's a very complex problem, right? And it's going to take complex solutions actually to to, to fix the problem. So yeah, whether that's more capacity at the uh, at the ports with uh, the port workers, the port police, the CBSA customs, and that's us included because we have investigators at the ports. Uh, you know the solutions from the auto manufacturers, policy changes at every level of government. Like there's all kinds of things that can be done. That's the important piece is that it's going to take everyone. It's just not one organization or entity that's going to be able to solve this on their own. Sid Kigma is Director of Investigative Services at Equité Association. We're talking about their 2023 auto theft trend report, which was released yesterday ahead of this summit on auto theft that's going to be held uh, tomorrow, uh, sort of arranged by the federal government, which brings in lots of stakeholders uh, to talk about how to tackle this problem. I mean, it has become a bigger and bigger problem year by year. I'm sure you've read about it. Uh, A vehicle now stolen every five minutes in this country, up a lot between 2021 and 2023. And Places such as Ontario, especially the GTA, 48.2%. Quebec, 579 Atlantic Canada, 34 And rising in Western Canada as well, not perhaps in the same way, but still something to be uh, to contend with. Um, Sid, there's obviously things that individual vehicle owners can do to protect themselves here. And I don't want to put all the onus of this on the owners themselves. But if you, are, if you own something that's becoming more and more coveted and more and more targeted, perhaps in some ways you should also be uh, cognizant of that and try and protect yourself in a different way. Yeah, absolutely, Ben. I mean, there's there's a number of things an individual can do to sort of protect their vehicle. And um, we call it a layered approach. So every layer you can add on of security is a better for protecting the vehicle. I mean, first and foremost would be able to park inside a garage. Now, that that's a luxury for uh, some people, and a lot of people don't aren't able to do that. But if you can, I mean, that's first and foremost what you want to do. Um, and then there's, you know, the basics, make sure your vehicle is locked and any security systems are, are engaged as well as park your vehicle in a well-lit area. But one of the things I would say that, you know, is available to most people and a lot of people think are maybe outdated are like the old sort of mechanical protection things. The like locks, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the steering wheel locks, right? Because what happens now is these more sophisticated thieves or criminals are coming to steal your vehicle and they're armed with a laptop. You know, because they want to plug into ports. Yeah, this is this isn't the old hot things. wiring from the old days, right? Yeah, no, exactly. And so when they come across a vehicle that they're interested in stealing, and they, you have, you know, they obviously look in the window first, and you have that visual deterrent of a steering wheel lock, and they don't have the capacity or the tools to deal with that. Well, then they're just going to move along, right, till they find one that they're interested in that maybe doesn't have that. And even if they do have the tools to be able to deal with it, it could be because those those locks can't be defeated. It takes more time and they don't, they want to spend as least amount of time at your vehicle or inside your vehicle doing the thing that they do as they can, because it just increases the risk of them being caught. Yeah, and you mentioned how com- complex this is earlier because I was looking at the at the container numbers uh, in Montreal, and it's a it's a lot. It's like seven hundred eighty thousand outbound containers. I think it was eight hundred seventy thousand in twenty twenty two. I mean, that's that's and they need to be moved quickly, right? That's all part part of a part of the supply chain system. Uh, so just relying on scanning, for instance, or better security at the at the ports mightn't be the solution in itself. You're going to have to try to nip this in the bud at every step. Yeah, that's just one piece of it, right? Like even if vehicles are identified inside a container, that doesn't necessarily mean they're stolen, right? There's legitimate vehicles being shipped out 
And to be taking the time to open every one of those containers could, you know, would just, like you said, slow things down. And I mean, that's our economy and they want to move the uh, goods, you know, in and out as quickly as they can and most more efficient as, as efficiently as they can. How can the manufacturers get involved in this as well? I mean, that's one of the recommendations that you've put out in this new report on auto theft trends was trying to, to make sure that vehicle manufacturers are doing more as well, or perhaps doing, making some changes, so to speak. Yeah, obviously the manufacturers have a piece in this and they'll be at that summit tomorrow as well. So that's really uh, exciting, but we'd really like to see that um, more effective anti-theft measures are are put into vehicles by the manufacturers. I mean, they put in anti-theft measures, but uh, again, these end up getting defeated by uh, the criminals and the bad actors. So we'd really like to see that uh, sort of stepped up. Right. I mean, this is an extra cost for them. I suppose that's one of the reasons why they're, they're reluctant to do this. Well, of course, yeah, they're in business to make money. Of course, you understand that. Um, the federal safety standards were put in place for in 2007 for, for some measures to make sure that the minimums were in place in 2007, and those haven't been updated since that. So that's one of the things that needs to be done. And in 2007, the manufacturers were told, okay, you need to have an immobilizer in the vehicles that you manufacture and so on in Canada. And uh, that was essentially your chipped key at the time. So without that chip key, your vehicle wouldn't uh, start. And that really had a huge impact on auto theft in 2007. I don't know if you go back on the numbers, you'll see how much auto theft dropped in the entire country because of those federal safety standards. So that's part of it. And then that'll really have a big effect on it. And I mean, when those safety standards in 2007 were put in place, push button starts weren't really a thing. We can just have the fob in our pocket and we pull on our door handle and it unlocks because it recognizes the fob is close enough in proximity to open up and and to start when we push that button. When you look at the, uh, I guess lastly, there's sort of been obviously uh, one of the things being proposed by the conservatives on this is to get tougher on those who commit the crimes. What's your sense of that? It's hard to make hard to make sense of. I mean, I think the crime, the, the laws are kind of already in place to to, to punish thieves and so on. Um, but for the time being, do you, do you get a sense that 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 these groups are 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 just recruiting just about anybody, and that if they you arrest one, there's going to be another one right behind them? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the, these criminal networks, I mean, they're able to entice people to do their work for them, uh, that sort of low level. They seem to be able to replace them fairly easily. But having the politicians involved is great because uh, they're bringing this issue really to light and, and bringing it to the media, which is, which is fantastic. And, you know, we encourage that at every level of government, whatever they, their policies, the legislative changes they can make, that'll help improve the situation, I think uh, will be very beneficial. Sid, uh, thanks so much as always. Anytime, Ben. Thank you for having me. That music means it's time to talk to an interesting journalist who's been doing interesting work of late. And this is a really interesting story. You'll know the notion of foreign buyers with lots of money using Canada or Canadian real estate as an investment vehicle, a place to park their money, has been talked about. It's true impact talked about for many years now, debated basically. In fact, a few years back, Ottawa announced a two-year ban on non-Canadians purchasing most real estate in this country. Over the weekend, they extended that for another two years uh, until 2027. Uh, Just this week, we spoke with uh, one expert uh, in real estate finance who saw it as more of a political move than anything that actually would 
bring down housing prices or increase supply. And maybe that's because the way that money from overseas enters and potentially distorts our housing market in this country doesn't have much to do with individual buyers who aren't Canadians, uh, or at least aren't presenting themselves here as non-Canadians. As was pointed out in the Cullen Commission held in BC a few years back, huge amounts of money were pouring into the province from China and being laundered through local casinos, then back into the economy, into things such as real estate. Uh, it was called the so-called, it was the so-called Vancouver model. A new one has emerged, according to investigative journalist Sam Cooper, who was, whose book, uh, Willful Blindness, had a lot to do with that Cullen Commission. Uh, illicit cash is now pouring into the country in different ways. He spent seven months investigating allegations of a whistleblower who came to him uh, suggesting that HSBC Canada and other Canadian banks uh, could have issued many billions of dollars in questionable mortgages to Chinese diaspora buyers. Here's how it works. In one allegation, a mortgage client claimed to earn $700,000 annually for a remote work in China, $700,000 annually while simultaneously living or simultaneously living in Canada and paying off a $10,000 student loan. Another woman who worked part-time in a casino got a $1.4 million mortgage by showing over $300,000 in annual income. How could that be? How does that work? Well, Cooper says, according to academics and criminologists that he spoke to and reviewed his whistleblower's documents, um, that the evidence fits into FinTrack's broader examinations of suspicious real estate and banking transactions. In 2023, uh, they published a groundbreaking study into 48,000 Chinese diaspora banking transactions. Uh, it, this is not. This is a interesting and somewhat complicated story. But Sam Cooper is always good at connecting the dots. Investigative journalist, founder of a new investigative uh, journalism platform called the Bureau and author, of course, of Willful Blindness joins me now. Sam, thanks for your time. Welcome back. Glad to be here, Ben. This is quite the story. Uh, tell me about, about this whistleblower that came to you. What is it that they were witnessing? Why did they feel that this was a story that had to be told? Well, yeah, uh, the whistleblower, in fact, was uh, familiar with my book, Willful Blindness. As you know, I've been chasing, you know, the mysteries of Vancouver's real estate prices for over 10 years in my journalistic work. And I discovered, you know, what was dubbed the Vancouver model. That's how BC casinos were used just to launder incredible cash from mainland China. And uh, the connections to organized crime are deeply scary. And this whistleblower uh, from inside a bank uh, essentially recognized uh, really the echo uh, or the mirror of what I was seeing in, in Vancouver real estate and casinos, but I had a missing sort of piece of the picture. I knew Canadian banks were involved. I didn't know exactly how or the scale. And this whistleblower uh, at a major Canadian bank in Toronto came across just an incredible scale of fraudulent loans from people that were claiming massive incomes in China, especially during the pandemic, claiming to have remote work jobs, paying them you know, about 500,000, just ridiculous claims. And yet uh, the bank, HSBC Canada, this whistleblower found uh, was shoveling out just tremendous amounts of mortgages, not just at this local branch, but across uh, Toronto and especially focused on this very same, you know, diaspora community that I knew was involved in the Vancouver model casino story. I saw a lot of connections to the studies of Andy Yan, the very prominent best data analyst. 
analyst in, in Vancouver whose seminal study in 2015 pointed to just massive ownership in Vancouver neighborhoods by people uh, recently from mainland China, it looked like, and claiming jobs as student and office manager. And there was just no idea why or how the bank was funding these loans. Uh, it appeared the money was coming from China somehow. And, you know, what the whistleblower in Toronto has found uh, answered that question for me. Yeah, maybe some examples, because the examples, I think anyone who's gone in to try to get a mortgage to buy a place knows what it, what kind of hoops you have to jump through. What kind of examples were was he seeing uh, come across other people's desks within that organization? Well, he came across loans such as uh, a person that was uh, claimed to be a homemaker with no income came on board with the bank in 2012. This is, uh, you know, in a suburb of Toronto. Very soon, just massive amounts of wire transfers from HSBC China start coming into her account. She starts distributing big checks to other people who are buying real estate. And so we know this story in Vancouver. It's very similar to the casino story. And then jump to the, the chase here in 2020. Suddenly, she's claiming she's not a homemaker. She's claiming she's a, a general manager doing remote work in Beijing for $760,000 per year. And wow. so this was just this woman who owned at least four homes in Toronto, completely fraudulent income. It was very obvious. And my uh, sources, which included criminologists, academics, said this woman plugs in perfectly to a greater FinTrack alert that was issued in 2023, which explained, uh, wait for it, how the Chinese money laundering uh, networks in the diaspora evolved from the Vancouver model. The casino money laundering couldn't do it during the pandemic. The casinos were closed. So they started wiring massive bank uh, transfers from Hong Kong into bank accounts across Canada, and it's laundered into real estate. That That's a big example, but it's a confirming example of so much for this story. I'll give you one more. One that really got under my uh, my source's skin was... Not Nothing against hairdressers, but the woman was a part-time hairdresser owning three homes in uh, Toronto and claiming a $500,000 annual remote work job. This person, uh, his quote to me was, hardworking Canadians are being put out of the market by uh, buyers like this. How is that fair? Yeah. I mean, ju just to... to to pinpoint this, I guess the, so you have people who want to move money out of mainland China, an easy place to put it is in real estate in Canada, obviously. We've seen that done before. The only barrier to this is trying to do it in a way that looks legitimate. And the barrier to that is that the people you send in to do it for you don't necessarily have the incomes, or if they did, wouldn't be interested in doing this. Uh, and therefore, the one barrier is qualifying for the mortgage, or at least qualifying at the bank for the mortgage. So this way, presenting, I, I guess, the allegation here is that presenting sort of fraudulent numbers and those numbers being accepted, right? I mean, that's, so it's, it's the same, it's that circle, right? That you've talked about for the last 10 years, Sam. Yeah, the, the big piece here is the mortgage fraud. So, I mean, the, you, you got the big picture right exactly. What this is, is transnational organized crime using Canada and using it easily to move money around the world, to launder fentanyl cash, and to, to buy up real estate in Canadian cities. And as one of my RCMP you know detective sources said in reaction to the story, uh, 
classic. Uh, what is done is organized crime uses people in the community that may be unemployed and ask them to to front or be a, a so-called money mule or straw buyer. So they, a person can say they're a homemaker and, uh, you know, have three homes. They're really fronting for organized crime who is laundering money from uh, Hong Kong and wire transfers into those mortgages. And it is that circle. But as you say, the big piece here is that is amplified as Andy Yan from SFU told me in his comments in this story by the bank lending, which is completely fraudulent. I'm, you know, the, the evidence is very clear. No one else in Canada can claim, you know, a $700,000 income in a foreign country and get a loan, but the banks were just handing these out and it just amplifies money laundering scams. And coming back to this point, I really do think that, you know, younger generations are losing hope in Canada. And this is why I think this is a just an explosive political issue. The more people understand that you cannot be, you know, an honest uh, taxpaying Canadian, even if you're a doctor in the center of Vancouver or Toronto and, and own a home, if you're if you're competing against organized crime. In this case, I mean, obviously, HSBC responded both to the whistleblower, I think, and to you. What did they have to say? That's right. Important to say that uh, I, I asked for uh, an interview with an appropriate manager so I could uh, test and examine the allegations and uh, uh, present the documents. They said, I'm sorry, we can't uh, facilitate that. But we do uh, like to say that uh, as an international bank, we're at the forefront of combating any illicit financial activity. HSBC Canada said uh, if they discover uh, anyone, you know, misusing their accounts, they can and do exit the clients. So that's what they said on the record. And uh, I, I have a lot more to ask them. Uh, and I'll continue to ask questions, not only of that right. bank, but others and but, regulators, more importantly. Right. Because I want to talk about the regulations, because clearly there are there are rules in place to try to prevent this stuff. Just what kind of volume? I mean, it's written in your piece, but what kind of volume were we talking about here? And how did it compare to sort of other similar branches, for instance? Well, um, this branch, according to the whistleblower, who uh, was a, a, a business master's degree graduate who had studied fake income fraudulent loans in another scandalous case, came across a scale and, you know, uh, documents and uh, probed his colleagues, perhaps a little bit, um, uh, the person said they were just numbstruck by what they saw. And so they did calculations based on documents and, uh, uh, you know, gathering from other employees across Toronto and calculated this branch uh, and other HSPC branches that other employees said were doing the same thing would have been involved in at least 500 million in these questionable uh, mortgages, very specifically focused at uh, diaspora borrowers who were uh, claiming these foreign incomes. And so, uh, Ben, that's you know, a big number, Sam. that's a big number. That, that's a big number, but it gets bigger because uh, it's very clear, according to the documents, that uh, the, the most uh, shocking case I, I, I led with, you know, your answer of a woman that onboarded with HSBC Aurora, the branch in 2012, also had mortgages from Toronto Dominion, from RBC. Uh, there was indication CIBC is in this mix. And of course, this is the exact same sort of, uh, you know, collection of banks that are involved in Andy Yan's Vancouver studies. 
And so when I did my calculations, uh, I talked to my experts and said, yes, 500 million of this type of mortgages from uh, about 2015 in Toronto only to now is very plausible. But I'm looking at the bigger picture when I'm talking about, uh, you know, this Vancouver model money that is coming in through illicit transnational underground, you know, banking schemes. This scheme we're talking about, the Vancouver model, that's how wealth from China gets into Canadian casinos and real estate. I calculate this is a very conservatively, at least $200 billion since 2015. It's very plausible to calculate that amount of money using these types of schemes in uh, Vancouver and Toronto real estate. Sam Cooper, investigative journalist, founder of The Bureau, a new investigative journalism platform and author of Willful Blindness is with us. He's just written a new article, a seven-month investigation that he's done based on some whistleblower allegations uh, around an HSBC branch. Now, of course, I should mention right off the top that they uh, have said that Anytime they find they they try to crack down on this kind of stuff and and do so, of course, they're being they're being sold at this point or have been sold. Sam, there must be rules in place about this stuff. How How is it allowed to mushroom this way, do you think? Well, I mean, it's a it's a theme that is becoming just very prevalent now in in reporting. I think I can, you know, claim a little responsibility for leading these investigations that show Canada has become a haven for global financial crime because uh, FinTrack, as Commissioner Austin Cullen said in his final report, has a tremendous amount of data and yet zero bite. Uh, the RCMP is doing nothing with all of these FinTrack leads. I don't want to, maybe let's be a little more kind, you know, mm-hmm. since the Cullen Commission, there is a, a case here and there. But speaking about the scale of money laundering, we're talking about uh, billions of dollars, it's confirmed uh, in other cases, are running through major Canadian banks, not only Chinese organized crime. I've reported on Iranian uh, state-sponsored crime, Hezbollah links, which was exposed in the Cameron Ortis, that's the RCMP intelligence mole trial. And no one can no one can dispute any of this, that billions are being laundered through Canadian banks and essentially nothing is happening. What we do see and have seen in the past two months, for the very first time, really, FinTrack has levied for Canada. It's starting to get, you know, notice they, they put, I believe, an eight million dollar fine on RBC, as I reported in the story for anti-money laundering compliance concerns, over a million on CIBC for uh, anti-money laundering compliance failure to report wire transfers. The uh, RBC case was failure to report something related with a fraud. And hey, um, that seems to ring a bell. These these themes are sort of what my, my last story was about. But FinTrack wouldn't confirm to me that, you know, what they've cited those two banks for is related to what's reported in my story. But I think it's beyond plausible it's connected. Uh, Additionally, the Globe and Mail has just reported recently that Toronto Dominion Bank looks like they're facing a $10 million money laundering fine, which would be the biggest ever uh, in Canada so far. And by the way, we know already Toronto Dominion was facing major investigations in the United States in connection to money laundering concerns. You asked, what are the regulators doing? Well, Here's a question of scale. In the in in the United States, if you're an HSBC and you're found to be laundering um, 
you know, hundreds of millions for Mexican and Colombian cartels, you face a $2 billion fine. And they did that to them. In Canada, we're talking about a million dollars or five million, and that only started. So it's fair to say Commissioner Cullen was right. Canada is wide open to money laundering. Nothing is happening from RCMP, uh, FinTrack. And uh, Ben, I'll tell you, it really starts right at the top. We're talking about the Minister of Finance, the Prime Minister would have to be the ones to really say uh, Canada has to get serious and change some laws. Yeah, it struck me reading your article, of course, because over the weekend, as I was reading your article, it was announced that the foreign buyers ban would be extended another two years. It struck me that this, this, that wouldn't work at all for what you're talking about. Exactly. The whole story is about how straw buyers or what's called money mules, this is people that anonymously throw up their name on an account so they can be a cog in a major, you know, as I'm saying, multi-billion dollar international money laundering network so that they can put their name on a property for someone in Hong Kong and China who is the real owner. And they can continue to launder money in those properties for transnational organized crime. And as my research suggests, by being a cog in that network, you start to get ideas and you can get a few mortgages yourself and become a mini landlord. So it's just a rolling snowball of absolute toxic finance that gets worse and worse, I believe, by the year, unless something changes. Um, we're, we're at the point now where, uh, as I've said, young people, uh, they don't have a lot of hope coming up in Canadian cities that they can play the game and even compete. Yeah, we at least want something like a level playing field. Sam, as always, thank you. Thanks so much, Ben. Former RCMP intelligence officer Cameron uh, Ortis was uh, sentenced today to 14 years in prison for breaching Canada's secrets law. Ontario Superior Court Justice Robert Marringer delivered the sentence in an Ottawa courtroom today after Ortis was found guilty of breaching Canada's official secrets law. He was once the head of the RCMP's operations research group and had access to highly sensitive intelligence gathered by both Canadian authorities and security partners. He was arrested back in 2019. He remained uh, has remained in custody since his conviction in November. He was under house arrest, I believe, before that. A jury found him guilty of three charges of violating the Security of Information Act and one count of attempting to do so. He was also found guilty of breach of trust and improper use of a computer system. Now, the Crown had been asking for a sentence in the range of 22 to 25 years. And prosecutor, prosecutor Judy Cleaver uh, was dissatisfied with the outcome today. Obviously, we thought this conduct was deserving of a much higher sentence than what the judge imposed today. But I think what this case does signal, like I said last time, is that when someone chooses to violate the oath to protect secret information that Canada needs to protect its security, that case will be vigorously prosecuted, thoroughly investigated, and that person will be held to account. So perhaps the deterrence here is that he was caught, prosecuted, and sentenced. Perhaps the lack of deterrence here is that the sentence uh, wasn't quite as stiff as some had been hoping for, including my next guest, Neil Bisson, is director of the Global Intelligence Knowledge Network. He's also a former senior intelligence officer at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS. Uh, Neil, thanks for your time tonight. Uh, thanks for having me, Ben. Just from within your your community, in, the sh- in your shoes, how important was this trial and how important was this sentence? Uh, from the perspective of the trial, I think it was incredibly important. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that uh, we have identified an individual who had a level of trust that uh, Cameron Ortiz did, but uh, and who basically betrayed that trust. But at the same time, it it opens up the eyes of a lot of people in the intelligence community and law enforcement communities in Canada to realize that 
independent of whatever level you're at doesn't necessarily mean that you're not beyond scrutiny. Uh, I was actually a little disappointed. I was under the impression that uh, with the crown and how with all of the uh, uh, basically the convictions that that individual that Ortiz would have received at least 20 years. Yeah, even the crown, I think, is going to appeal this uh, because in this sense, I mean, it's a 14 year sentence. Uh, there's time served already. So seven years behind bars. I mean, it seems I mean, it's it's it, for, for the for the outsider, it seems like a, a relatively serious sentence. Obviously, he's going to, he's been in jail. He's going to stay in jail. But I suppose from a from a, from a deterrence point of view, that's not a long time when we talk about what sort of uh, crimes he was convicted of. Yeah, you're talking about an individual who had access to potentially top secret intelligence and law enforcement information. And he used that basically to make money. We've never really known much. I mean, one of the interesting, one of the fascinating things about this case, amongst others, is that, you know, we often think of sort of people who trade in these kinds of secrets as doing it for some sort of ideological reason. But this didn't seem like that at all. No, I wasn't under that impression either. From, from what I was reading and what I've seen in relationship to the case is that he basically had an opportunity to reach out to some of these individuals who were in the criminal element and uh, essentially say, hey, listen, I'll give you a heads up as to what to use and what not to use. And you give me some money. Yeah. And in that case, I suppose here, I mean, so listeners understand the kind of secrets that you see day in, day out, working with the knowledge that those are valuable and can be sold must be something that is that is you know sort of hammered into day in, day out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, any intelligence agency, a law enforcement agency worth their salt is going to realize that there's always the threat of the, the inside threat. So those individuals who are provided with access to information that are at a trusted level and are either waiting it out or come across an opportunity that they see could uh, benefit them in some way. I'm happy to see that this has at least been identified because hopefully this will give intelligence organizations in Canada, the, the Canadian intelligence community, as well as you know the law enforcement community, pause to basically look at this and say, okay, how often should we be looking at those individuals who have access to information? And what should we be doing in relationship to ensuring that there's not a compromise here? Yeah. I mean, again, violating the Security of Information Act is, is a huge deal. And and I guess in this sense, what would, I mean, not to go into numbers, but do you think this sentence is a deterrence? Because it's it's not a common occurrence. And I don't think anyone sitting in what would have been his shoes 10 years ago would have wanted to spend any time in prison, let alone, you know, 14 years. Right. To be totally honest with you, I don't see it as being as much of a deterrence as it should be. Uh, from what I read, the judge had basically said that this is the first time something like this had come across and uh, the first time that the SOIA had been used. But in reality, when you're seeing someone betray their trust and betray the trust of other intelligence communities, this has reflection on Canada. And what we need to do is look at this as a situation that's got to be dealt with severely so that there is deterrence, so that we don't see other people saying, well, let's see, how long did it take them to catch him? Um, how long did he spend in house arrest? How long did he actually serve time? All of that is a consideration going forward. And, and also, I would suspect the position of trust that he was in, because he was in a very senior position, and therefore that implicit trust that would have been placed in him was even higher. Therefore, perhaps that duty of care is the wrong term, but his duty of care would be, it would have been even more elevated. No, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head with that one. The, the issue is that those individuals who work for these organizations for an extended period of time and are given 
higher levels and higher titles doesn't necessarily mean that they're any less susceptible to some form of compromise. And I, I think that this is what's really got to be looked at. You have to ask yourself that, you know, the higher level that an individual achieves gives them access to more information. Now, somebody has to be vetting that on either an irregular or a random basis to try to realize, okay, what has this person been looking at and why have they been looking at it? I mean, Ortiz himself tried to use as a defense that there was some grand scheme and great threat against Canada that he was basically working uh, against. But in reality, I think that was just basically a red herring. He was throwing that out there, hoping that someone would pick up on it and say, oh, okay, well, obviously we don't know everything about this, what was going on here. So we're going to allow you that to do that. If, I mean, you were a senior CSIS uh, intelligence officer yourself. I mean, obviously the hierarchy is there. Every time you, you're given more responsibility, you're also given access to more sensitive material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that, with that level of access, uh, you have to ask yourself, how many people are going to be questioning, questioning what you're looking at? And in reality, it, it makes it very difficult for anyone. If the higher up you go, the less likely you're going to be questioned on what you're working on and what you're looking at, because there's just this assumption that, well, it's obviously for good reason. Neil Bisson is director of the Global Intelligence Knowledge Network. He is a former senior intelligence officer at the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS. We're talking about the sentence today handed to Cameron Ortis, the ex-RCMP intelligence officer who was found guilty of attempting to sell secrets. He will serve seven years behind bars. That's part of a 14-year sentence uh, that also included some time served. That was uh, decided today in Ontario Supreme uh, Superior Court, rather, he was found honestly guilty of breaching Canada's official secrets law, which is a which is a big big deal. Neil, when you look at the the impact this would have, because obviously this come this whole idea of the five eyes and how it works and how we look at each other and how this information's passed around comes up all the time. And, and in terms of this case, what kind of impact do you think it had with our intelligence partners? To be honest, Ben, I think that all of our intelligence partners realize that at any point in time, there could be some sort of a compromise that's identified within any one of their own organizations. So I I don't necessarily think that it's a huge surprise because these things do happen. We know that that's part of the business, especially when it comes to intelligence. There are individuals that are identified and are, are involved in some sort of a compromise and it affects the entire system. The unfortunate thing, I think, is that this sentence of seven years, I mean, after you take in consideration what he's already served, kind of shows that is Canada at a point where they realize the importance of their relationship with their other five eye partners? Is this enough to basically deter other people from being involved in the same type of activity? Because it has a ripple effect. We're talking about basically all of the Western intelligence organizations who provide and share information with us and provide us information on threats within Canada and outside of Canada. And if they're concerned that the information that they're providing us is going to jeopardize their own sources or agents or assets or their own techniques, then, or it's going to be used against them, then they're definitely going to take some pause. Just the, on the specifics of this case, because uh, the, a jury found that Ortis was guilty of leaking special operational information without authority to Phantom Secure CEO Vincent Ramos, who was selling encrypted cell phones to organized crime members, uh, to two people, Selim Henry and Mohammed Ashraf, who were suspected of being agents of an international money laundering network with ties to terrorism, and also uh, trying to leak information to Farzam uh, Mehidazadeh, who was uh, RCMP, one RCMP witness told the trial that he was perhaps the most important money 
money launderer, one of the most important money launderers in the world. So this wasn't sort of, I mean, oftentimes we, we read stories about secrets being shopped around to different state actors and so on. This was a different one. I wonder if it gave pause to intelligence services everywhere about who was looking for this information and, and, and who it would be sold to. Or has that always been part of the equation as far as uh, groups like CSIS are concerned? I think it's always part of the equation. Uh, we had been talking earlier about how uh, criminality and uh, intelligence intersect at times. And if you've got an individual like Cameron Ortiz who's providing information about, oh, listen, don't use this type of encrypted phone or don't use, you know, use this to try to avoid further detection, it makes it very difficult for intelligence organizations and law enforcement organizations to do their job and do it properly. Yeah. And when you look at the details as well, as well of this case, I suppose one of the interesting things, too, is when you look at who he was dealing with, uh, it would raise some issues, too, about, about, I mean, we're in the middle of a foreign interference inquiry, but also just not that foreign interference can mean many different things. It's not necessarily just state actors coming in and trying to recruit people through consulates and embassies and so on, but it can be, it can have many different prongs. You're absolutely right. You've got individuals and groups that are state and non-state actors, you know, terrorist organizations, they're going to want um, a certain perspective taken by federal, provincial and municipal governments uh, that basically make their jobs easier. If you're talking about money launderers who are working with drug you know, runners, if you're talking about those types of interactions, you're going to see these individuals do everything they can to try to make sure that the laws that would be used against them are either lighter or that they're not being there's not as much observations happening in their direction so that they can continue to do what they're doing pending this appeal by the crown of the sentencing when you look back at this whole process from the arrest which i think which caused a huge amount of of since it was a sensational story when it emerged and then through the trial what we learned to trial now through the sentencing what do you think then the the legacy of this whole Cameron Ortis uh, trial and conviction and sentencing has been? Well, I'll tell you what I hope it isn't is I hope it's not looked at as being the tip of the iceberg because at this point in time, we've got one individual who was put in a position of very high clearance. Uh, he had a lot of access to a lot of information and he used that to the detriment of the reputation of the Canadian RCMP and also of our intelligence organizations. It's looked upon as an individual who's basically done everything he shouldn't do with the responsibilities that he was given. So I think when we look back at this, hopefully in the next five, six, seven, eight years, we're going to see that maybe this was a one-off. But to be totally honest with you, I hope that the Canadian intelligence community, as well as the law enforcement community, look at this as an opportunity to say, okay, we've got to look within a little more often. And instead of constantly thinking that these individuals who have acquired this level of access deserve this level of access, we have to ensure that they're not potentially being compromised or that they're not taking upon themselves to do things that they shouldn't be doing with this information. Neil, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it. The fountain of youth, that mythical spring, which allegedly restores the youth, uh, restores the youth of anyone who drinks or bathes in its waters. I mean, it's been one of those tales that's been around forever. It's been around for a very, very long time. It's been told around the world for thousands of years. It's a, it's an Indian legend, I think. It came a Taino Indian legend, I should say. Uh, there's often that story about Ponce de Leon, the, uh, the explorer who was apparently obsessed with finding the Fountain of Youth. Now he found himself in uh, Florida on the Gulf Coast looking for it uh, and was told that it would be there. And this sort of didn't find it, obviously. He died. 
1521. He was shot in the thigh with an arrowhead carved out of a fishbone in Florida, and then it ended up dying in Cuba not long after that. But it's one of those stories, you know, the idea of finding the fountain of youth that has obsessed people for a very long time. I mean, imagine how much of uh, the cosmetics industry and so on is all built around this idea of, of trying to, to, to sort of, you know, peel away the years, so to speak. But what's interesting is it's not so much what's outside the body, it's what's inside. And over the past little while, scientists have been discovering more and more about the basic biology of aging and coming up with interventions perhaps to slow it down. They're kind of optimistic that there might be a breakthrough here that might not only help us live longer, but really the most important part of this is to extend the number of years in which we live with good health. Because that's kind of uh, the problem here is that, as I was mentioning before the break, uh, we all have birthdays every year. Numerically, we all age the same way. Physically, we don't. Some people age faster than others, or I should say some people don't age as fast as others. And it's sort of figuring out how that works that could be the key scientifically to trying to find out how to slow things down a little bit uh, or to stop it to some extent. Um, and the big part of this is not so much the idea of sort of living forever and the fountain of youth and so on. It's sort of giving people who have shortened life expectancy, such as HIV patients, maybe a new lease, uh, more years. And also, most importantly, helping us live those years in better health, because so much of what happens uh, as we get older, our health complications are related uh, to aging. Someone who's right at the forefront of all this is Dr. Douglas Vaughn. He's director of the uh, Potosnack Longevity Institute, the Potosnack Longevity Institute, cool name, uh, and a professor of medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. Uh, Dr. Vaughn, thank you. Thank you for having me. Just the name itself uh, conjures up all sorts of images of, of fountains of youth and so on, but what do you do at the Longevity Institute? Well, we're trying to we're trying to reshape the the trajectory of aging in our species. That's that's the uh, that's the big goal. Uh, you know, we're we're at a unique moment in human history. Uh, you may not realize it, but uh, the the biology of aging is rapidly being demystified uh, as we speak. And at the same time, we have the tools and the ability to measure biological age in people in a precise way that never existed before. So the convergence of those two phenomena give us the opportunity to think about doing something big and actually think about slowing or reversing aging in our species. And that's what the, that's what the Potosnack Longevity Institute is all about. Tell me a bit about how we've come to better understand the phenomenon known as aging, because I think we all understand that we reel in the years numerically the same, but we don't age the same. No, well, that's ex exactly right. And that's the, that's the common understanding that, that allows people to appreciate that aging might be malleable. You see it in your family, you see it in your friends, you see it in your coworkers. Some people age very slowly. They, they seem like they don't, they're not affected at all by orbiting the sun. Other people age much more rapidly and they uh, express and manifest aging related morbidities at younger at a younger life so the fact that it varies from one individual to another is the is fundamental evidence that it is uh potentially malleable and that we could do something about it what determines that because i've been reading through uh, some of your uh, interviews and so on i gather it's it's parts nature parts nurture <laughs> well that yeah, that that's the simple answer, right? They're, they're yeah. they're Sorry, we deal in simplicity, unfortunately. But I'll let you, I'll let you actually explain it properly. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to get too deep on this. But you know, there there are lots of factors that we understand. There, 
there's certainly genetic factors that impact upon aging. I think we're learning that uh, epigenetic determinants seem to be even more important. That is the pattern of methylation of your DNA that occurs as we age, and that alters the way our genes function. Epigenetic age is one of the most powerful and precise measures of your biological age. It's not the only one, but it's it is the uh, it, it is it's the uh, uh, choice measure, and the and probably the best measure that we have today. But that may change over time. There are certainly environmental things that impact upon aging, and we see that I think in the blue zones around the world. Uh, there are dietary effects on age. There are socioeconomic effects on age. Uh, there are probably climate effects on age. We'll, we have the opportunity to learn more about that now as we see climate change taking place around the world. So all these different factors playing together, which ones are most important in, in a given individual? It's hard to tell, but in aggregate, we can, we can uh, identify and synthesize a measure of biological age that reflects all those different inputs. Tell me a bit about, uh, I guess it's the Grim Age test and, and sort of predicting your, your DNA age. That's what you, you've just been talking about. Uh, how does that work and, and how do you determine that? Well, that's a remarkable insight. It was developed by Steve Horvath and his group at UCLA a few years ago. They basically look at methylation patterns across the genome and they've identified uh, signature changes in methylation that reflect uh, biological age. They use uh, a proprietary algorithm to develop this, but it's it's unbelievably powerful to tell you the truth. It, it, in, in large groups, it is highly predictive of lifespan, but it also predicts the age of onset of a variety of different aging-related morbidities. So it, there, there's enormous insights that, insight there. I don't know that we know exactly how that works, but the, the mathematical relationship is is uh, undeniable. And it's it's been demonstrated that uh, epigenetic age, which is what grim age is all about for humans, is also it also works in a variety in a, over a hundred different mammalian species. It determines their bi- you can measure your biological age by looking at the pattern of DNA methylation. Amazing. So it seems a universal truth. So when my grandmother used to say so and so has good genes, she was onto something. Yeah, yeah. and it's not it's not the hereditary. Mm-hmm. Your, your methylation pattern is impacted by your diet, your exercise, your lifestyle, all kinds of things. Your where you uh, where you live. Do you live by a green space? Do, do you uh, do you smoke cigarettes? That is a has a tremendously negative effect on your uh, uh, epigenetic age. So all those things are factored in, in a in a very, uh, a very robust and compelling way when you measure something like grim age. Uh, okay, so it's not it's not you're not sort of predestined to this. This is something that alters and 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 feasibly could be altered, right? I think that's where we're getting at. That is the that's exactly the point. Uh, epigenetic age is malleable. You can change you can change your pattern of methylation over the next few weeks by by altering your diet and uh, exercise. And so, you know, that, that that says, if that's true in the short term, maybe by doing that, you can actually bend the curve or 
alter the trajectory of your own aging. And there may be drugs that come along that that uh, are able to selectively impact upon your DNA methylation. It doesn't mutate you in any way. It doesn't change your coding sequence, but it does alter the functionality of your DNA. Right. And this is one of a number of things that when people come to see you, and you've been doing some research on this, obviously, uh, the Grim Age test is one of a number of a sort of a battery of things that you put thing through, put people through. Uh, a lot of them are really interesting, too. There's sort of olfactory function uh, and others that you sort of use to kind of figure out what kind of condition the person's condition is in, to quote an old song. <laughs> yeah, I remember that tune quite well. <laughs> Indeed. That shows how old I am. Yeah, ditto. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we we've been we've been thinking about this for a long time. We, you know, I I first became interested in measuring biological age in, in humans when we studied a group of old order Amish individuals uh, that uh, immigrated to the U.S. from Switzerland in the uh, early part of the 19th century, and they live in a community not far from Chicago. Uh, and th- this this singular community harbors a genetic variant actually a genetic mutation that appears to protect the carriers from aging. So we learned how to measure biological age in that group. We're continuing to work with them today, but now we've created version 2.0 of the laboratory on our campus, on on, on, on the Northwestern campus here in, in downtown Chicago. And now we bring people in and we measure a variety of different physiological and molecular uh, indices using a really interesting array of tools to give us a real a, 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 a multi-dimensional perspective on their biological age. And you already mentioned some of the things that we do. We measure uh, physiological functions uh, like your sense of smell, your sense of hearing. Uh, we do a number of different measures of the cardiovascular system. I, I'm, I have a predilection for that. I'm a cardiologist by training, so I'm particularly interested in aging of the cardiovascular system. But we also do a, 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 a broad array of molecular profiling, too, that allow us to measure biological age as well. So at the end, we put all that information to, together, the physiological measures, the molecular measures. We sprinkle in a, a, a liberal and heavy dose of artificial intelligence that actually analyzes many of the tests that we do, that, and it gives us a different version of biological age or a different measure of biological age. And all those together are what we use in our laboratory to come up with a composite. Now, I don't know which one, one of the measures that we do is the most accurate or the most informative. I think that probably the the at least our, our way of thinking it, about it today is that you need to be multidimensional because we don't know which one is best, but probably in the aggregate, they give us a pretty good picture for a given individual. Dr. Douglas Vaughn is with us this half hour. He's director of the Potosnak Longevity Institute, a professor of medicine and cardiology at Northwestern University in Chicago. We're talking about the study of aging and how we're coming to far better understand the physiological nature, uh, the genetic nature of aging to some extent. Uh, Dr. Vaughn, when you look at what you're finding out, I know we're still sort of on this path towards understanding more and more. But ultimately, I suppose the, the, the end goal here would be to be able to manipulate aging in some way to either slow it down or perhaps reverse it. That's that's sort of the, the stuff of legend, isn't it? But but um, to what end do you think? Where, where do you see the true benefit uh, of this beyond simply giving us more years? 
that's something we think about a lot. And and I'm, I'm certainly quite confident that we can actually alter the trajectory of aging in people. Uh, you know, the donor that that uh, provided the generous gift for us to create the institute that I lead here at Northwestern is deeply interested in us doing something for people that uh, are disadvantaged with respect to aging, and in particular, people with chronic HIV infections. Uh, in, individuals with chronic HIV tend to age more rapidly than normal. Nobody knows exactly what that's about, but our our donor, Mr. Podesnack, and his family have charged us with figuring out how to slow that down. Right. So that's a big priority for us. So how are we going to do that? And how are we going to even think about doing it? I, I think that the the fact is that we could, first thing is that we can measure biological age. And I feel pretty confident that we can good, get a good readout on any good, any specific, any individual. What we'll do relatively soon is pivot into doing randomized, controlled, uh, prospective clinical trials and enrolling individuals that want to participate in studies like that to see if we can't slow down or reverse the traje- their trajectory of aging. And you can imagine the kind of things that we might test. And there are a lot of, lot of drugs out there in the world that people um, hypothesize might have anti-aging properties. One of the drugs that's commonly spoken about is metformin. It's widely used in the world for the treatment of diabetes. It's uh, very, very safe, and it's very inexpensive. But does it really impact upon the trajectory of aging and people that are aging too quickly? I don't know, but we can test that. There are other things that we can test, things like intermittent fasting or weight training or hyperbaric oxygen or cold immersion therapy, you name it. Uh, a GLP-1 agonist like Ozempic, some people think that might have an anti-aging effect. The list is extremely long, but we're going to be rigorous and uh, deliberate and thoughtful about this. And I'm, I have no doubt that we'll find some relatively simple and accessible interventions that can impact upon aging. So we want to be able to find some therapeutics or some interventions that that, that uh, slow down aging. And why do we want to do that? Because we want to extend the health span of people. Age this is an important point. Age is the most important risk factor for every do, every disease we deal with in adult medicine. Age is the most important risk factor for heart disease. Age is the most important risk factor for cancer. Age is the most important risk factor for cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. Get the pattern there. There's a there's a common thread there. Age puts that puts that, puts that us at risk for developing age-related diseases. So if we can slow down aging just a little bit, hopefully we can give people a few more healthy years, a few more years to enjoy their life, a few more years to put off the onset of those aging-related illnesses. And that's what we're all about. And that's what we want to, we want to give people that are disadvantaged in this regard a better chance. Right. I suppose it's best not to think of this as numerical age, right? But sort of your your physical age and the quality of life that you have through those numerical years. Exactly. We, the, the, I, I couldn't say that better. I think that's exactly right. Well, uh, Dr. Vaughn, uh, thank you so much for your time and fascinating work, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your call. I'm glad to talk to you. 